Good afternoon. Today is Friday, the 28th of July, 2023. It's now quarter past one. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Vanessa Beely from Damascus. Um, OK, we're going to get uh, kicked off with the whole issue of banks uh, removing people's bank accounts uh, and so on. I want to say thanks to Martin Edwards, uh, who has written many great articles in the past for the UK column for this. Uh, but let's bring uh, the B Corporation movement on screen. Now, of course, uh, we've talked about this organization before, but they're all about uh, letting let's use business as a force for good. Brian, so uh, it's ethical investments and all this kind of stuff. But uh, this is what they have to say. Uh, we need an inclusive, equitable and regenerative economic system for all people and the planet. Uh, let's use business as a force for good. Uh, now, they, uh, the B Corporation movement, as you can see uh, on that graphic, there's this little other graphic there, which is uh, called B Lab. And it's the B Lab that decides whether companies uh, are appropriate to be um, considered members of the B movement or not. Um, so let's have a look at the B Lab uh, and their anti-racism stance. Uh, well, in fact, it's a bit more than that. As an organization, B Lab stands against all forms of oppression, including racism, transphobia, classism, sexism, and xenophobia. We commit to focused and sustained action that dismantle racist systems, policies, practice, practices, and ideologies within ourselves and our networks. Uh, as we continue to learn about injustice, uh, we embrace radical reorientation of our consciousness and will listen to the voices of black, brown, indigenous, and marginalized peoples to catalyze equitable outcomes for all. Now, the key word in there is our networks, the key words, our networks. And this is what this is all about. This is common purpose for business, for uh, for businesses. But if we bring this on, B-Lab, they say, is a non-profit network transforming the global economy to, to benefit all people, communities, and the planet. So this all sounds fine. But in fact, there's a bit of an ideology behind this. And I'm just going to remind everybody what Mark Carney said uh, not so long ago, a couple of years ago, I suppose now, uh, we'll not get to net zero in a niche. It requires a whole economy transition. Similar kind of language to B-Lab using there. He went on to say companies that don't adapt, including companies in the financial system, will go bankrupt without question. So the question then is, um, are companies uh, removing people's bank accounts because they're uh, actually bought into this ideology or are they removing people's bank accounts because they're concerned about uh, the attitude of the likes of Mark Carney, who's saying very clearly that if they don't take this attitude, there will be consequences. But it should perhaps be no surprise to people then uh, that one particular bank belonging to the B movement, a certified B corporation, is Coots and Company. So uh, this would explain perhaps uh, why certain people have been kicked off. And Nigel Farage, of course, is who we're talking about. But they're not the only bank uh, that's already signed up. Coventry Building Society has become the first B Corp certified UK building society. Seahore uh, and Company, another private bank in the UK, also a B certified company. Uh, the Charity Bank in the UK is a B certified company. Uh, and the Cooperative Bank, well, not in the UK, this is in New Zealand, because of course it's not just a UK thing, it's a global thing. Um, the Cooperative Bank in New Zealand, also a B certified uh, corporation. Now, it takes quite a long time for people to become certified. Um, and so other uh, organizations are, of course, in uh, working towards it. Uh, but let's look at the broader picture, because what is uh, the B movement into? Well, it's here is the, uh, the Sustainable Development Goals Action Manager, which the B movement has set up, which helps all businesses take action for the Sustainable Development Goals. So it's not just about transphobia and wokeness. It's also about uh, net zero. Absolutely. Um, and if we look at some of the characters that have been around the, the Farage uh, situation, here's Alison Rose, uh, no longer, of course, a chief executive of the NatWest Group because she resigned a couple of days ago. But this is a little bit of her CV from a, an event she took part in recently. Alison co-leads both the UK government's Energy Efficiency Task Force and its Rose Review Board for Female Entrepreneurship. She also sits on the board of directors for the Institute of International Finance, in addition, Alison is a member of the International Business Council for the World Economic Forum and vice chair of the business of business in the community, uh, is a non-executive director of Great Portland Estates PLC and sits on the board of Coates Charitable Foundation. And she became a dame commander of the British Empire 
in the 2023 New, Year, New Year's Honours list, how the mighty have fallen. Uh, but nonetheless, the point is, this is a global uh, initiative with the ty same types of globalists that we find in many other uh, policy areas. Um, here, let's have another look at another member of the network. This is uh, ESG Clarity. And uh, well, they have a little video uh, series that they're calling Best Behaviour, B being the letter B. And of course, all the behavioural science side of things comes in at this point as well. Uh, and so we start to see how this entire network has operated and operates and, and has done over the last couple of years in many policy areas, not just in the area of finance. And if we just bring that back on screen again for one second, uh, the top right-hand video there in the Best Behaviour series, uh, inspirational element of working with companies that care is uh, none other than uh, the former, now former Coots CEO, Peter Favell. So, uh, you know, I don't know what you think about this. I mean, I'm literally only scratching the surface of this and there's much more to talk about here. Um, but we've got, you know, former governors of the Bank of England saying that there's going to be, you know, a, a whole uh, economic transition. Uh, we've got the B, corporate, the B movement saying there's going to be a whole economy transition. And most of these companies seem to be bought into this uh, and are either members already or are becoming members, uh, not just to push, as I say, so-called woke ideology, but also net zero. Yeah. Well, you've identified the key thing, Mike, which is policy. Uh, everybody in this country should be looking at policy and where it comes from. So is this driven by the UK government? Well, many people would say it is, but you've identified very clearly um, that what's going on in the background is policy coming out of the likes of the World Economic Forum or the World Health Organization or the United Nations. And these external creators of policy are driving that back into the UK political system. So it's a double stream because we've got MPs that are now completely brainwashed by sustainable goals. They don't know what they are really, they just follow the policy. Um, so we've got some of it coming through uh, Parliament, the civil service, and we've got a lot of it coming th in through these globalist corporate think tanks like the World Economic Forum. But the, the public in UK absolutely at the bottom of the pile um, because they're not being consulted at any stage. Uh, so we're going to have much more on this in the coming days and weeks. We'll talk a little bit more about it in extra. But in the meantime, speaking of net zero, uh, let's uh, welcome Vanessa to the programme. And Vanessa, uh, you've got an update for us on what's been going on in Greece. Yeah, I mean, just extraordinary how uh, the media jumped on this story and uh, according to people actually on the islands, affected mostly Corfu and Rhodes, um, wildly exaggerated, although, of course, the fires themselves have caused tremendous damage. So first of all, let's look at uh, Corfu. Uh, there are claims by officials that it was started by arsonists. Also in Rhodes, the next slide, there's actually a video um, which is allegedly of somebody starting the fire in Rhodes and firefighters have said there are indications of arson. But let's see how I, I kind of picked on the BBC, but they weren't the only ones to, to be uh, reporting on these fires and to be turning it into, in my view, a highly exaggerated version of events. So first of all, um, two die in Greece plane crash. It's one of the uh, planes actually being used to extinguish the fires, crashed, killing, um, I think, two on board. But then going forward, Mike, um, let's have a look on this uh, catch-up by the BBC from Justin Rowlett, the climate editor. I'm not going to read all the way through it, but in every single paragraph, almost without fail, climate change. Um, they found the southern European heat wave would have been virtually impossible without climate change. Well, I'm also being told that the temperatures currently in Greece and in Italy are pretty seasonal norm. But as you see, he goes on for climate change. It's impossible in pre-industrial times. Now will become effectively fairly normal weather. Frightening indication of how the global climate is changing. Total um, scaremongering by the BBC. And it continues on their front page of their website. 
um, they mentioned that Corfu is the latest Greek island to evacuate over wildfires. Moving on, let's see what the uh, Rhodes report says. Thousands forced to flee disaster film wildfires. Moving on again with the BBC, of course, they front page uh, platform the UN live global boiling here. It says UN chief as July set to be the warmest ever. We were just talking before I came on about 1976 and the scorching temperatures back then. And this was actually, I picked up this because I follow a number of uh, Greek activists uh, on Facebook and various social media sites, but this was from the Corfu tourist page. Note to the BBC News, BBC World Service, Corfu is not being evacuated as per your newsfeed in the UK. The areas affected were evacuated last night for the safety of the tourists. And as a lot of older people live in small villages and hamlets, there was a concern for the safety and respiratory issues due to the smoke. The fire has now been under control since around 8 a.m. this morning as the first helicopters started dropping water just after 6.30 a.m., as can be seen in the video, which is on their Facebook page. Um, maybe someone from the newsroom should contact us as we tagged many news stations into our video from last night. So I wonder if Mariana is keeping an eye on the Whole Food Forest page. And then this was sent to me um, by one of the Greek activists that I mentioned. Um, his website, IMF Occupation Greece, gives a pretty good idea of what he's writing about. But many uh, of the Greek academics were talking about the fact that these islands have been firebombed in order to make room for the establishment of wind farms that have been planned for some time. And this is from uh, the blog article in a recent speech in Parliament, PM Mitsotakis stated that we have 3,000 wind farms set up and we need to double it to 7,000. In theory, when they were first promoted on the islands, the locals were going to get lower electricity bills, but this went out of the window. Each wind turbine costs at least 1 million euros without the setup cost. The actual turbines destroy the ecosystem by not allowing pollination by bees as they cannot fly through, let alone the amount of concrete needed for the base, which destroys the natural contours of the mountain and the residue of collapsed wind turbines that, are ended, that end up in the mountain streams we are drinking. Of course, local contractors make money on building the base of these wind farms and they promote the official line uh, that I can't read. Yeah, sorry about <laughs> that. Missing. No worries. Um, and obviously there are other environmental issues um, with the wind farms that are being talked about. Also interesting that the Greek activists themselves are not allowing authorities and officials onto the burned out land. They are insisting on forming reforestation groups and therefore pretend, preventing uh, any wind farm uh, strategy from the authorities, uh, both in Greece and in the EU. OK, Vanessa, thank you very much for that. Well, I'm smiling as you're talking. It's very serious what you're reporting, but uh, you're on to the subject of propaganda from the BBC. I go researching a separate way. Uh, what am I on to? Uh, propaganda by the BBC. And uh, where are we talking about? Ukraine. Here's the BBC uh, headline. Ukraine war. Kiev claims success as southern fighting intensifies. Um, but if we just put a label on this, this is complete propaganda. But we got the lie of the Ukrainian offensive success to keep the NATO proxy war and the slaughter going. So the BBC here wants this war to continue. But look at this uh, headline from the BBC. I think we need to bring a question mark in on this one. So this is a day ago. Ukraine's Western armour struggles against Russian defences. Russians use layers of mines to prevent UK's, uh, Ukraine's advance on the southern front. So the BBC has got a bit of cognitive dissonance here. What do they do? They simply report what they are told by the Ukrainian military. Uh, so the first comment here is talking about a new phase 
of the counteroffensive. Says that's a bit premature, but it says they're getting closer to breaking through Russia's defence lines in the south. This is a complete and utter lie, easily provable by the reports from the front. If we go down to the second one, we've got a gradual advance and we've got mention of Melitopol and Berdyansk. This would mean that the Ukrainians had taken huge swathes of Russian-held territory. That's also a lie. And if we go to the final one, um, it's talking about if Ukraine's forces are able to make further progress in Robotny. Now, we're going to have a little look at that, but uh, Simolitopol mentioned again, this is seeding the UK public that there's real progress uh, being made. Let's focus in on Robotny here. Now, I'm delighted to say that there's many good uh, people reporting on the war in Ukraine. I've just chosen military summary today because they've got some particularly good and clear maps. But let's put in Robotny here on the left of your screen. This is all on the Zaporozhye front. And this is a pocket that the Ukrainians have attacked again and again, losing vast numbers of, of, of vehicles to the extent that it's being mockingly called Bradley Square. It's effectively a a graveyard for armoured vehicles. And uh, the Ukrainians are just following one failed attack after another without making any significant progress in this area. They're simply leaving the wreckage and the dead bodies behind. And uh, this is a little bit of an audio of a video report. I'm just going to play it in the background. But we've got the same pocket, but uh, what's coming up on screen is little video clips of how the Russians used Lancet drones this is nothing to do with mines. This is the Russians using a highly efficient drone system to kill Ukrainian armor in the pocket. And there are many pictures now showing the landscape literally littered with vehicles, including German Germany's uh, Leopard tanks, uh, American Bradley fighting vehicles and other Western arms. So the BBC trying to put all the blame on Russian mines is simply not true uh, because the Russians are demonstrating that they've got a really remarkable ability to kill off armour using this particular drone, aside from the intense artillery barrages which they have available to them. Now, what the BBC doesn't want to talk about, and I've switched to history legends here, is the fact that in the northern front, uh, this is in relation to uh, the Russians moving towards the Oscar River, there is a, a really um, major Russian push underway uh, where several bridgeheads across the rivers have been made. And this is really starting to push very hard at uh, Ukrainian territory, which is essentially soft. And what I mean by that is that once the Russians are through the first lines of the uh, Ukrainian positions, there are very modest second lines of defences. And after that, there is nothing to stop the Russians moving to the West. So if we follow this through, the reality, despite what the BBC says, that if we take the whole of the front line, this is focused again on the Zaporozhye, the southern front line. You can see the Russian trenches in black. Uh, but the reality is the Russians have not even reached the first lines of Russian defences, uh, let alone made any significant progress towards Melitopol or the other so-called major defensive positions in this region. So the BBC utterly lying to the UK public. Uh, but this is the other bit of deception by the BBC. And I want to make it quite clear. We are horrified at the slaughter of the Ukrainian troops. This is the BBC back on the 9th of June 2022. And here the BBC is prepared to admit that between 100 and 200 Ukrainian soldiers were dying each day. Well, of course, in the present offensive, these numbers are greatly enhanced. We have more Ukrainians dying. And uh, this is a figure which has been uh, mentioned on many of the social media sites uh, who are feeding off reports from the battlefield itself. Uh, but this is suggesting that uh, the Ukrainian 
dead and wounded in the casualty uh, in the offensive so far. The casualties uh, around about 19,000. If we go to the Russian reports on this, the Russians esti are estimating Ukrainian offensive. The dead and wounded casualties are up to 26 to 28,000. But I have to say, watching uh, the Ukrainians simply repeating the same failed attack tactics day after day, uh, seeing, uh, if you can stomach watching it, uh, the casualties falling on the battlefield, he hearing the reports from Ukrainian servicemen talking about the battlefield littered with bodies, uh, mercenaries who've been leaving the Ukrainian fight because of the conditions at the front of the bodies. Uh, we're truly into a really bad uh, position. Yeah, so Vanessa, uh, the other uh, battlefront perhaps developing uh, is in Syria between Russia and the United States. Now you've reported on that uh, recently on the UK column news, but uh, what's the latest? Um, well, the latest, basically what I've got now is uh, they released uh, the camera footage of the clash between the Russian jet and the US uh, Reaper drone, uh, where CENTCOM basically claimed that the Russian fighter jet flew dangerously close to US aircraft and deployed flares in its path, which struck the propeller, um, but could have, uh, according to the US, been a lot more uh, dangerous. Um, and so, so basically what this is showing, as, as we've been talking about, is um, an, an increase in the actual conflict situations between directly Russia and uh, the US. But also what I've been witnessing and I've had confirmed is that there is a big mobilization of Syrian Arab army soldiers I'm seeing truckloads uh, in Damascus heading <clears throat> to the north, to the northwest, uh, and to their Azor kind of on the border with the U.S. occupied territory in the northeast. Terrorists in the north uh, yesterday and the day before have started uh, forest fires and agricultural fires in the north, again, destroying, um, you know, civilian resources, agricultural resources using both drones and explosive bullets to start the fires. Um, those terrorists, of course, uh, are under the control effectively of, of the US alliance in the north, and that includes Turkey, a NATO member state. And then yesterday there was uh, actually the second attack, the first attack to some degree failed. And yesterday there was a major attack, which we can watch the video of now, and I'll talk very briefly about it afterwards. attack itself uh, left uh, six dead, 23 injured, and the majority were women and children. This was in an area called Sadi Zainab uh, town to the south of Damascus. We know, of course, that I mentioned last week that the U.S. is building up its troop presence, not only in the northeast and central Syria, but also in Jordan and in Anbar in Iraq. 
the fact that the Syrian Arab army uh, is mobilizing huge numbers of forces and hardware to these areas. I have a very strong feeling the UK also put out a travel warning to Turkey, interestingly, in the last 48 hours, telling people not to go to Turkey because of the risk of terrorist attacks, which of course is the ultimate hypocrisy, as they are probably behind the terrorist attacks that are going to carry that are carried out in southern Syria, particularly because it's there that the UK special forces um, are operating predominantly. Um, so I think uh, Syria yet again is going to be facing an escalation uh, in the war. Uh, obviously, with Iran, Hezbollah, and Russia against the U.S., probably uh, Turkey, the Kurdish Contras, and the various terrorist groups, not forgetting that the U.S. has gathered around 10,000 ISIS fighters in the Northeast alone. Um, at one point in the video there, Vanessa, we saw somebody uh, running towards uh, the fire with, with a bucket of water. I mean, is that... What, what sort of uh, state are, is so-called civil, def civil defense in at the moment? Is there actually a, a fire service available? There is a fire service available, but because of sanctions and because of the U.S. occupying the fuel, they have limited fuel, limited resources. The equipment is ancient. They can't mobilize quickly. Many of the centers are, are basically decimated because they can't keep going. It's a volunteer service. So people are paid literally nothing to be volunteers in the fire service. You know, this, this has been the situation since the beginning of the war and since, of course, the creation of the White Helmets that stole much of the equipment from the real Syria civil defense. So, yes, this is, you know, it's the Syrian people dealing with these kind of attacks. This was a suicide uh, motorcycle uh, bomb. And, and the one two days ago was the same, but I think it, detonated rather early. And actually, the authorities kind of thought it was the heat that had um, blown up the bike. They didn't actually relate that to a terrorist attack. And not forgetting, of course, that HTS in 2017 carried out a similar attack against Iraqi pilgrims in an area very close to here, one of the shrines. Um, yep. Nobody has claimed responsibility yet. Okay. And Vanessa, it seems very clear to me that as the, the, the American NATO plan in Ukraine has stalled, uh, desperation is now we, we create distraction in Syria, and that could be military or it could be inflaming the civilian population. So the chances that all of this is accidental at this time in Syria, uh, none. none, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Okay. 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 Thank you, Vanessa. Thank you. Let's uh, move on then. And let's look at this. Now, we talked that uh, we've been talking about this for years. This is the Ministry of Defense's doctrine uh, and how we fight modern warfare. It's called the integrated operating concept. Uh, and the central idea of the integrated operating concept is that it's offensive rather than defensive. So really, Ministry of Defense should be renamed the Ministry of War, perhaps. Uh, but let's have a look at the actual text that they use. The central idea of the integrated operating concept is to drive the conditions and tempo of strategic activity rather than responding to the actions of others. So we drive the warfare, we create the wars, uh, and of course this is great for the military-industrial complex, but what's this integrated bit? Well, we get more of a clue from the chief executive of Thales UK. Here he is, Alex Cresswell, uh, and uh, he uh, said this, this week I had the pleasure of welcoming members of the Ministry of Defence and industry experts to Thales' Enabling the Integrated Force Customer Day at Shrivenham. Uh, what's Shrivenham, Brian? Well, one, one of the military bases, I don't know what they do there now, but uh, I believe one of the key things is they run the so-called staff courses, which is where the, you're taking people to uh, the upper levels of learning within the, within the military, leading you on to do jobs in the Ministry of Defence. So a corporate chief executive gets onto a Ministry of Defence property and invites the Ministry of Defence on there to talk to him. So what is, what is the relationship? Let's continue. Uh, he goes on saying this, at Thales we recognise the significance of exploiting and sharing data in a trusted manner across different domains, empowering decision makers using crucial moments. Uh, during crucial moments, during the event, 
we had the opportunity to share our strategic thinking and explore how industry and customers can collaborate to deliver greater value. Uh, the three zones that they discussed at this were exploiting data, see the unseen, and defeat the threat. They provided valuable insights into the capabilities, technologies, and enablers of the integrated force. And you notice there, these are his words from his press release. The words integrated force have capital I and a capital F. This is a thing. And so what, what are we doing? We're integrating the Ministry of Defense and the defense industry, integrating them. What is it we're building? Let's look at the uh, what the Ministry of Defense have to say. This is UK Stratcom's Deputy Commander, Lieutenant General Tom Coppinger-Symes. Uh, Strategic Command was created to be defense's integrator. It's a key part of our raison d'etre. Integration is about teamwork. So they're building teams between themselves and the industry. So I'm not sure where that takes us, Brian, but I'll just say that it's not just, just before you comment, it's not just the defense industry that they're building teams with, because of course, it's also the defense, the disinformation industrial complex is being built under the same integrated operating concept, uh, where they say the old distinction between foreign domestic defense is increasingly irrelevant when fake news to appears to originate not abroad, but at home, it gains credibility. And so they have, uh, they have continued to build this. And just to finish off, of course, we talked about years ago, the fusion doctrine, uh, where they were talking about building a culture of common purpose across government. They now seem to be extending that outside of government to the uh, corporations, a common purpose, an integrated force. It's quite an incredible thing they're developing here. And when, when we lift the lid, as you've just done, it's very obvious to see what's going on is not right because this is nothing to do with an, a nation state, the UK, defending itself. This is something else being built. What I, I couldn't think of when you initially answer, asked me the question just now, it's the Defence Academy, which is based at Shrivenham. And of course, we've now got a mix of defence and other countries, uh, sorry, other companies coming in. Thales is not even a British company. It's a French company, if I remember correctly. And so this draws us back into all matters to do with EU and the defence union, which we say has never gone away. And uh, I believe from the, the newspapers today, Tony Blair is also saying it's never gone away uh, because he's promoting the uh, rejoining of the European Union. Yes. Yeah. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. You'd be very welcome as a member. Uh, you could pick something up at the uh, UK Column shop, and I'd like to say thank you to everybody that's done that in the past week. Uh, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org and ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Okay, well, a quick advert here for the Alternative View 13 conference coming up on the Sunday, the 22nd of October. This is in Milton Keynes. And uh, this is very important because it's a live event. And of course, AV had to shut down following uh, lockdown and the lockdown period, but we have been able to kickstart it. I'd just like to add for the audience that we are assisting, UK Column is assisting the Alternative View team to get going again. We do not run this. This is for uh, Ian Crane's old team, uh, but we're delighted to help. And I'm delighted to be uh, a guest speaker, but I will be handing the baton over to Gary Fraun, who's also been one of the uh, uh, key Alternative View speakers over many years. So big success and well done to the Alternative View team themselves. We'd also like to say that uh, March for Freedom uh, will be assembling at the Sundial in Plymouth City Centre at 12 o'clock on the 29th. So we've got more evidence of people who are deciding not just to sit at home, but to get up and uh, speak out about what's happening. Yes. Okay. Let's uh, move back to Ukraine. Uh, and Vanessa, we were talking about Captagon uh, in Syria a couple of weeks ago, but uh, RT seems to have pushed something out, uh, perhaps has some bearing on this story. Yeah, very interesting. We talked about uh, the BBC again, pushing the idea uh, in line with the UK-US Captagon sanctions against Syria um, that uh, President Assad and his family had turned Syria into a narco state. Um, I would like to mention that very early on in the war here, I visited um, a mental health center in Aleppo that had been taken over by the terrorist groups backed by the UK and the US. 
and that those mental patients were drugged up by the terrorist groups and then used as suicide bombers against their own people in West Aleppo. Um, so again, just to mention who brought the drugs into Syria in the first place and gave them to the terrorist groups to enable them um, to continue the war against the Syrian people uh, and armed forces. So this uh, little clip is from um, something, a short report put out by RT a couple of days ago, um, talking about the fact that Ukrainian armed forces are uh, actually now pretty well drugged up to enable them to continue the war against Russia. Боевой медик Федорович, ну я видел, что он выдал шприцы, инъекции на толпу, сказал, типа, пацаны, кто боится, вот на те, ну, типа, взбодритесь, чтобы не было страшно. Взяли просто, раздали наркоты и отправили убивать врагов. Я пристрелил двух гражданских, которые выбежали на дорогу в сторону нашей команды. Вот этот первый случай, это было 1 марта, а второй случай 8 марта. Нам сказали занять последний дом в жилполосе. Начали двигаться к этому дому. Кто-то из мобилизированных увидел там в нем движение. Валик сказал, короче, давай не будем тратить время, рисковать произведи два выстрела. Потом, когда мы начали подходить к дому, я зашел в него, обнаружил там всем тел, всем гражданским. Офицеры закрывали глаза, то, что курили там высылушники, травку даже и нюхали, тут же закрывали. В рядах моего подразделения было очень много наркоманов, я бы сказал, даже системных наркоманов. Главное влияние всех этих веществ, он подавляет страх смерти. Жить хочется всегда. А ширнули человеку препараты, ему стало все пофигу, и он пошел куда ему сказать. Quite extraordinary, really. And, and yes, you know, this is an RT report, um, but it's not as if Ukraine doesn't have a history and Ukrainian leadership doesn't have a history. And Joe Biden and Hunter Biden don't have a history of uh, drug dealing in Ukraine. So I, I think it has a degree of credibility to it. And we should also say, Vanessa, of course, that we only have to go back to the Vietnam War to uh, yeah. remember that there was a sim similar horrific problem amongst American troops. And if I remember correctly, some of the worst atrocities uh, was openly recognised were carried out by groups of American servicemen who were high on drugs. Similarly, um, when the uh, Russians were in Afghanistan, they had problems with their own troops. But a large Part of this is to do with the stress on the troops at the front. And effectively, to me, it's a sign of them breaking, which is no mm. uh, disrespect to the men fighting. Um, it is a reflection on the fact that these are created wars and uh, mm -hmm. nobody cares about what happens to them or the people who suffer as a result of the actions they take. Okay, well, let's uh, move mm -hmm. on then, Vanessa, to Ukraine and the issue of child trafficking. Yeah, I mean, what I wanted to focus on here is the persistence by the UK and the US and the aligned media, including, of course, the BBC, um, that Russia is forcibly um, deporting children from Ukraine and taking them to prison camps in inside Russia. As I've said before, I've visited some of these children refugee camps where they're provided with occupational therapy, three meals a day. Uh, bus service into town whenever they want to go, educational uh, help, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But here we have uh, James Cleverly in uh, New York on the 17th of July, what he beating the drum on again. More than 500 days have now passed since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. 
at least 9,000 innocent civilians lie dead, including 500 children. No idea where these numbers come from. Thousands more Ukrainians have been kidnapped, imprisoned, and tortured, according to James Cleverly. So he carries on. 19,000 Ukrainian children remain in Russian camps, and their parents, according to him, are desperately searching for them. A further 2.5 million Ukrainian men and women have been deported to Russia. Note the wording in this. I mean, it's extraordinarily uh, deceiving, deceptive. These are barbaric crimes. Russia is trying to erase Ukrainian identity and cultural history. Of course, in fact, the opposite, that NATO has been trying to erase the Russian speakers in Ukraine, particularly in the Donbass and the Orthodox religion. And he claims that Russians are using children as an instrument of war. But let's have uh, a look at one of the organizations that he uses to back up his claims, an organization called Save Ukraine. I haven't had a huge amount of time to go into them, but they do have uh, organizations in Canada and in the States. And let's have a quick look at who is supporting the organization in the States. Well, top left, USAID, CIA Outreach Agency, Choose Love uh, at the bottom uh, middle there, UK-based uh, NGO um, with government backing, and then moving forward, let's have a look at uh, basically the history of uh, CIA ties to child sex cults. The finders obscured as coverage goes from sensationalism to silence. I recommend everybody reads this series for Mint Press News by Elizabeth Boss, investigative journalist. It looks at the CIA connections to the cult, the finders in the 70s, children that were kidnapped from daycare, locked in cages in Tallahassee in Florida, from, uh, submitted to satanic ritual abuse, sold off as sex slaves, um, forced to participate in orgies and rituals and sacrifice of other children, etc. It's a horrifying uh, story. It's a three-part series, and as I said, deep connections to the CIA. But coming to uh, today in Ukraine, this is a report, a very recent report. 85 children with intellectual and physical disabilities were forcibly taken from the DPR to Spain by a Spanish military aircraft and placed in a state-run orphanage where they are sexually abused, involved in the drug trade, and were trafficked around the world. Minors with special needs live in inappropriate conditions, and any attempts to return them to their homeland are deliberately suppressed by the Spanish and Ukrainian authorities. This is an investigation by the Foundation um, for, to Battle Injustice, interestingly known as the FBI when you do the acronym, found exclusive evidence of trafficking disabled Ukrainian children in Spain. As I said, please go and read this report. It is very well sourced and evidenced, including by children rights organizations uh, in Europe. Human rights activists of the Foundation to Battle Injustice found verified documents and testimonies proving the involvement of American and Spanish nonprofit organizations, the Ukrainian government and Spanish social services in child trafficking. Not only this, there's a report out by Southfront, uh, well known for their military reports really throughout the uh, conflict in Syria. But this one, legalized sale of children for, in inverted commas, fair parts and Ukrainian justice. Why did the court release Transcarpathian child trafficker? So what's this story about? <clears throat> um, so the identity of this uh, child trafficker was established, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> as 43-year-old Denis Barodi, a resident of the city of uh, Uzgorod in the Transcarpathian region of Western Ukraine, he had worked as a teacher in an orphanage, headed up the uh, Uzgorod Gymnasium as an employee of the Uzgorod uh, City Council. He is presently the head of the Hot with Love Charitable Foundation, as well as the founder of the Transcarpathian Regional Youth Society of Orphans called Share. According to Ukrainian law enforcement officers, he paid an advance payment of $1,000 to the boy's mother uh, convincing her that the boy would be safe away from the war 
and that he would ensure the adoption of her child by good people within the EU. The total cost of the child agreed with mother was to be 5,000. Ukrainian law enforcement officers, however, received intelligence that the man had brazenly deceived the child's mother. No such adoption was planned. His intention was always to sell the baby to organ transplanters for the sum of $25,000. According to the report, this guy alone uh, has carried out three of these uh, uh, child kidnaps, basically, uh, and has sold them between the ages of one to two years. Um, for organ extraction. Countries involved are Germany, Romania, and Poland. And I also recommend that everybody goes to uh, the YouTube channel of Eva Bartlett. Eva has been in Donbass multiple times uh, since, I think, 2016 onwards. And here, uh, she, she films uh, multiple uh, civilians who talk about Ukraine's white angels abducting uh, children. And there he talks about the fact that usually, according to the law, there is a court order to take the child. But they came up with a new law and automatically parents were deprived of parental rights without trial because allegedly parents could not ensure the safety or the well-being of the child. This is fundamentally wrong. There are multiple, multiple reports on this, both from DPR um, journalists, and as I mentioned, from uh, evil, uh, Eva and Christelle Mayer of uh, Donbass Insider, a French journalist also based in Donbass. These civilians spoke about how people known as the White Angels, Ukrainian military police, were actively seeking to abduct children and were succeeding. They were hunting our kids and we were hiding them around the buildings. Kiev openly announced that they would be forcibly taking children under the premise of providing security. They do so according to the people we spoke with, and this was in uh, what was known as Bakhmut, um, and many other testimonies since, against the will of parents and without their consent. So, um, you know, James Cleverly, the BBC, focusing on really a fraudulent aspect of the war that has yet to be proven that Russia is mistreating the children that it is taking to safety um, from Donbass, while, of course, Kiev and the Ukrainian authorities are running effectively child trafficking rings and organ trade rings. Vanessa, thank you very much. Uh, really serious subject. Um, but of course, this um, abuse of children takes many forms in many different countries. And uh, a few days ago, I was able to have a remarkable interview with a mother whose story truly incredible. We will have the video for that uh, available shortly. Um, but just to pop this on screen, essentially, uh, Devon and Cornwall police in in large numbers, tooled up, helmets, riot gear, uh, to take away a 16-year-old boy against his wishes and the protests of the family. Uh, the mother, who happens to be qualified as a lawyer, Hannah, uh, ultimately watched her son bundled into a vehicle to be taken to an un unknown location. And if people want to know what the crime of the youngster was, it's simply uh, being Hannah's son because the boy had done nothing wrong. Uh, the uh, police, social services and the local authority in the southwest were much more interested in why the mother was protesting and causing them problems in the courts. So if anybody thinks that UK is squeaky clean in how it handles children and young people, I would suggest otherwise. But I was particularly interested, having uh, done the interview with the mother, that we should then come up to this uh, headline, which is that the Chief Constable of Devon and Cornwall Police um, has been suspended facing serious sexual assault allegations. And this has been launched by the police ombudsman from Northern Ireland. He was previously in Northern Ireland and worked there, I think, for some 27 years before coming down to Devon and Cornwall. Now, uh, we should point out straight away that uh, uh, the chief constable is denying any criminality. Uh, this is reported in a number of uh, places, including the police oracle. So we want to make that statement very clear to the audience. But let's also remember uh, that we only have to go back to 2022 to see that Devon and Cornwall police were joining six other uh, police forces being put into spe uh, special 
measures constabulary to face extra scrutiny over failures to answer emergency calls and adequately deal with sexual offenders. So um, absolutely fascinating, Mike, that uh, we've got a defective Devon and Cornwall police force as a baseline, possible big problems with the chief constable, but that force goes off as a group of heavies uh, to uh, take a 16-year-old boy away from his mother and take that child to an unlo unknown location. It is known where the boy is at the moment. And effectively, according to his mother, he's being held a prisoner. But uh, that's the state of it and the action by Devon and Cornwall Police. If we go looking for answers as to what the state of uh, the Devon and Cornwall Constabulary is no better place to go than their Twitter page. I'm not sure how we describe X, Mike, uh, but I looked at X and uh, here was the uh, notice of the fact that he'd been suspended. Uh, the chief of police, Will Kerr, OBE, KPM, following allegations of misconduct. Um, but what else did we see on the, I'm going to stick with Twitter to keep it easy. Uh, well, we saw some of the priorities of Devon and Cornwall Police. And here we've got taking positive action. Uh, now, this is all about positive discrimination, effectively. But the police, um, so tied up in this, a major event with Eventbrite. Are you from an Eastern European, Black, Asian or other diverse background? Are you female? Do you have a disability? Are you under 25? If you are, or if, <coughs> excuse me, if you're also a member of the GT, uh, G, LGBTQ plus, plus uh, um, uh, part of the community, the police are interested in you. So a lot of woke focus, even though the police can't do the basic job of policing and uh, stopping crime. Uh, but it goes on because I found this, the Clua initiative and... Uh, Apparently, you've got to download the Safe Car Wash app uh, to help the fight against modern slavery. Let's have a look at this video clip to see what this is all about. It's, it's, that ease of reporting things is hugely important. You know, in a busy world where everybody's there, everybody sees things, they, I must do something about that. And then by the time they they get to do it. Things have happened. Life has moved on. Like, and you start to then doubt yourself. Well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe I, I won't say anything. And, and then you're back in your everyday life, busy life. So actually that ease of reporting is, is really important. You know, that if, if it's not easy to report, people just won't, won't do it. So really, we're, you know, with the police, working with other organisations like self, like the Clear Initiative, around apps like that just to make it really easy to put that information in and to get that intelligence through to the to the right organizations so there we are this is about intelligence gathering uh, mike don't misunderstand what it's about it's intelligence gathering and if i pop this one on screen this is a bit more about the clear initiative itself uh, 2022 in the uk there were over 100,000 men women and children trapped in modern slavery uh, of course, part of that is, is immigration with no controls or checks and balances. But then we discover that the We See You, the, Clu the Clure Initiative, is part of the national work of the Church of England. Uh, so we've got the Church of England in bed with the police and what is the aim to collect data. And uh, if we have a look at this uh, second video clip, we've got a bit more comment from another police force on the Clure Initiative itself. Uh, watch out for the subliminal. In terms of simple things you can do is visit the Clue Initiative website where you can download their Safer Car Wash app. I would urge you to do that so that you can get involved in helping us identify offences and people that are vulnerable. Some of the things that might concern you and things to look out for at a car wash where people are being exploited is people not wearing the right equipment. So do you have people outside in inclement weather, they haven't got the right coats on, bearing in mind they're washing cars all day, they're not wearing wellies. Do they look a bit down in the dumps? Do they look uh, well uh, kept or do they look like they might be slightly neglected? Do they talk to you when they clean your car? Is it them that takes the money or do they look to somebody else to speak for them? Some of those are just indicators that something might be wrong. And if something looks like it's too cheap, there's usually a reason for that. So please download the app and get involved today. 
Uh, well, there we are. And of course, she was stood in a church. The police officer stood in a church talking about this collection of data. Uh, this is the public spying on the public. But did you get the subliminal? Uh, I hope you did, because in the, in the background for quite a long period was the message, let others decide, report and let others decide. Um, we'll end uh, with this uh, particular slide. Uh, we've got uh, the actual uh, community of St. John the Baptist. This is where the foundation originally came from, uh, a group of nuns. Now, several of them are, have died. Uh, there are some still alive, but I believe they're in a care, care home. Um, uh, my question is that if we look into this, um, is this really to do now with um, looking after people uh, and good works through the church? Or is this really charitable work that's been subverted for a political, and I'm going to call it a Stasi agenda, mm -hmm. which is to get the population spying on each other? I'll leave it to the audience to think about that. Okay, so we'll just uh, have a look at a little bit of propaganda. I think it's propaganda anyway. Uh, you may have noticed there's quite a lot of stuff in the media at the moment about uh, nuclear weapons. Now, this might be related to the uh, Oppenheimer uh, release of the Oppenheimer film. I'm hearing good things about it. Maybe people want to go and look at that. But all, all around that, all of a sudden, we seem to be getting all kinds of stuff about nuclear conflict and so on. So the BBC, uh, Radio 4, is pushing this out at the moment. Protect and Survive, Attack Warning Red by Julia McDowell. So this is a serialization of a book. Uh, so this is the book. It was published uh, in the 90s, I think. I'm not quite sure exactly. It may, it may be more recent than that. Uh, but anyway, this was all about how Britain prepared for nuclear war in the, during the Cold War, including things like, you know, uh, making sure that we knew how to build our own nuclear fallout shelters by uh, getting some cardboard and sandbags, uh, Brian. So it was real. And going under the stuff. kitchen table, of course. That kind yes. of thing. So yep. it, was, it was very much at that time a, a fear uh, propaganda that was being pushed out. And this seems to be what's building again. Um, probably worth reading that book. But anyway, uh, the uh, Telegraph pushing this out, uh, a nuclear war could wipe out all of humanity and nobody seems to care. So we've got to be afraid that nobody's caring. Uh, this is uh, basically what he's saying. Uh, this is Philip Johnson, who's, of course, the editor of the, of the Telegraph. Perhaps we just don't want to think about it, but misunderstandings can bring nuclear war perilously close to reality. So we've got to be getting nice and afraid, Brian? Yeah, so there's nothing to do with creating a war in Ukraine to bring us closer to a, an actual war in, in Eastern Europe. It's all to do with misunderstandings. Yes, yeah. but, but probably the, the worst and most egregious uh, little bit of propaganda is just in time for, uh, for the uh, next uh, Remembrance Sunday. Uh, the government has released a design for the new uh, nuclear test medal um, so all the people, uh, all the UK servicemen that took part in the nuclear tests in the 50s and so on uh, are uh, going to get this medal with King Charles on it. They're, I'm sure they're going to be very excited if they're uh, still alive, that is. Uh, I, I'm stunned about this, this Mike, because, of course, um, our government worked very hard for very many years to make sure that none of the servicemen who were damaged in, in the nuclear tests uh, were ever given any co um, compensation. And if I remember correctly, uh, the, cr the crew of the warship HMS Diamond uh, fought repeatedly uh, for recognition and compensation after they were forced to sail through uh, fallout zones, uh, but the government continually blocked their efforts. So this is a, a cynical uh, effort by the king, I think, here, Mike. It, it absolutely is. And i just uh, make the point, I was having a look at one or two of the uh, government documents uh, about the issue of people, that, whether people had, uh, you know, been injured uh, or got cancer as a result of... Uh, of what happened uh, in the 1950s with these tests uh, and the language used in them. Well, you could put that report alongside a report with, about uh, COVID-19 vaccination and you would be hard pressed to, to, to uh, separate the them in terms yeah. of the, the way that the information is presented. But anyway, look, we're just about out of time. So let's end with this. Now, we've mentioned uh, Keir Starmer being uh, a trilateral commission member several times on the UK column news, but Declassified UK has done a report on it. And I just thought we would mention it. So Keir Starmer joined secretive CIA link group while serving in Corbyn's shadow cabinet. Uh, Starmer served on the Trilateral Commission alongside two former heads of the CIA without telling Jeremy Corbyn, who would have blocked it, Declassified can reveal. 
so they're saying that uh, the Trilateral Commission describes itself as a global membership organization which seeks to discuss the, uh, the sorry discuss and propose solutions to some of the world's toughest problems. Uh, it was founded in 1973 by David Rockefeller. Uh, it's a, a networking group for elites, uh, and Rockefeller was close to the leadership of the CIA at the time. Uh, membership records seen by declassified show Starmer uh, joined the Trilateral Commission at some point between March 2017 and October 2018. Uh, but they're saying he left again uh, between April 2021 well, and June 2022. My question is, do you ever leave organizations? Well, I don't, like think, I don't think you ever leave in the real sense, but uh, it helps to distance yourself if you're going to get involved politically again. So you just move to the side, but you're still involved. And of course, it's it, Trilateral Commission is another organization putting globalist policy directly into place in, in UK politics. Uh, and if we just throw that back on screen, of course, Keir Starmer, only one of only two MPs that have been members of the Trilateral Commission while they've been serving as MPs. Uh, the other uh, was this man, Rory Stewart, otherwise known as Florence of Arabia, uh, reportedly, according to Declassified and a former MI6 officer, the only other British MP known to have been a member of the Trilats while serving as an MP. And of course, this is also the man who uh, refused to answer uh, what he did while he was at the Bilderberg Group, uh, while he was an MP as well. Uh, and uh, well, we're seeing that happening more recently with respect to Tobias Elwood, that same approach uh, that MPs are entitled to a private public life. Uh, we will continue to talk about that in the near future. In due course. Okay, thank you for that, Mike. Well, that brings us to the end of today's news. Um, thank, thank you to Mike. Thank you to Vanessa. And uh, also a very big thank you to everybody who is supporting the UK column, um, because we can only do what we do with your financial support. And it's really tremendous um, what, what uh, the people are doing who've supported us uh, with donations or subscriptions to date because we are expanding. So thank you very much. You're off for some well-deserved holiday, Mike, uh, for a couple of weeks. So I will look forward to seeing people again at one o'clock on Monday. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>